Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. In this episode we're going to be exploring the growing trend for science communication at music festivals. We'll be travelling to the Blue Dot Festival in Cheshire and the Green Man Festival in South Wales to explore some of the innovative and interesting ways that scientists and science communicators are finding to do science communication. But don't worry, this is the Physics World Stories podcast, so we did find time for some science as well. I've been going to festivals for many years, and science communication didn't seem to be such an integral part of them until relatively recently. It's been growing steadily, and nowhere more so than at the Blue Dot Festival at Jodrell Bank in Cheshire. It's home to a whole host of radio astronomy dishes, most notably, of course, the Lovell Telescope, and Jodrell Bank is a real scientific centre of historical, present and future significance. But in 2011, the rock band The Flaming Lips took to a specially constructed stage underneath the Lovell Telescope, and an idea was born in Professor Tim O'Brien's head. And the idea was the Blue Dot Festival. Blue Dot is different to other festivals. They do things differently. Science isn't an addition to the festival. It's at the heart of it. I caught up with Tim O'Brien at the festival. I was just watching Professor Monica Grady talking about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and she was interrupted only briefly by the Radiophonic Workshop playing the Doctor Who theme tune (laughs) on the main stage. Yesterday I saw you, a professor of astrophysics, Mm. talking to Wayne Coyne, a rock star. I don't think there's another festival like this. Uh, it does sound unusual, doesn't it? I mean, if, you, if you're going to have your talk, you talk about aliens interrupted by anything, it ought to be the Doctor Who thing tune, aren't they? Um, well, so, I mean, basically, it's, I mean, it came out of um, working with uh, Teresa Anderson, who, who I'm married to. We are, we are, a, we are a couple. Um, Teresa runs the Discovery Centre here. Um, so so we, uh, we worked on the project to build these, these buildings um, that opened in 2011. And... Um, and we were, you know, we do a whole range of sort of public engagement with science projects or public talks and we have schools visiting and so on. So all that sort of stuff you might say was like the meat and drink of sort of public engagement and outreach work. Um, but we wanted to, we were aware that we only ever reach a certain uh, fraction of the population by doing that. You, you basically reach the people typically who, who probably already have some interest who are going to be prepared to come to a talk or you know it's a school audience that are brought by the teacher or whatever and there's a vast actually probably the majority of people out there they might not even have ever heard of Jodrell Bank and certainly have no idea what we do um, and so this idea of having a reaching out beyond the sort of confines of science to a different audience so people who might be interested in music or art or literature or, or whatever um, we thought was quite an interesting one that you sort of bring people in and they maybe they're attracted by coming to listen to the Chemical Brothers and Fleming Lips but in fact while they're there they experience some science as well and we, we very strongly feel that science is a really integral part of our culture just as much as any of these other things are um, you know it's at the heart of, of modern life um, and um, and we wanted to sort of emphasise that and bring all these things together and sort of demonstrate that, I don't know, scientists are real people, normal people, like everybody else, mostly. Um, so, you know, um, you can... And, and it's just, you know, the, the name... I guess the name comes from... It comes from Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot, and, and the idea was... It's about 
the planet, it's about the people on the planet, it's about celebrating human creativity in all its forms, it's about looking after the planet, and it's about the exploration of space, all these sorts of things sort of coming together and creating something unique, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think it definitely is. I mean, you do get science at other festivals, but I don't know of another festival yeah. where science is at the same level the as the music. Yeah, no, we absolutely wanted it to be, you know, at the same level, and that's why I, you know... That's one reason why I've always done these science from the stage as well. So the main stage, you normally you would probably reserve for the for the bands, and, and these other activities go on in other tents and things dying around. But we thought, well, actually, yeah, we've got to have the other tents. There's got to be multiple venues. Well, let's do some science from the stage as well. Let's give it. Let's give it that. Um, that place and yeah we did that we did that first in, in 2011 with the Flaming Lips so I went on stage and played the sounds of pulsars and there's a dum, 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 and the clouds started clapping in time and then there's the science 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 chant and it was like and I was standing there thinking oh right I didn't expect that <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe this works maybe this is fun and so we uh, yeah we've grown it from there is that something you considered earlier in your career you might be doing? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I, was, I was saying to... Uh, in fact, I was telling my daughter about this the other day, actually. Because she's, uh, she's just graduated and, uh, and I was sort of uh, congratulating her on how well she'd done and stuff. And I was saying, well, you know, you're doing... You're far more um, capable of talking to people than I was at your age. And, and I remember I did my... PhD, and then I, I got a sort of temporary lectureship in uh, Preston at what was Lancashire Polytechnic then, University of Central Lancashire now. And I can remember even, you know, partway through a lectureship there, which is my first job, if I was late for a meeting, I wouldn't go in. I couldn't go in the room because um, I was so shy. And if I opened the door, I knew everybody would turn around and look at me. And, 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 and you know, I was pay- you know, it was painful, you know. And so the idea that I would ever step onto a stage in front of thousands of people and talk about stuff would be just like ridiculous. But it's sort of it's something like I don't know. It's sort of like I mean, I like I like I like talking to people and I like give, giving talks. I like doing lectures at the university and things like that. So I suppose you learn some things in doing that. But um, it's like I don't know. It's just stepping off the edge of a cliff or something. You just sort of say, "Oh, stuff it. I'll just go and do it and see what happens." And, I've never been. I've never had anybody bottle me off the stage yet. So, <laughs> so does the does the festival interrupt the science in any significant way? Yeah, I mean, you know, over the course of the weekend, there's so many people here, and there's so much technology here. All that technology is producing radio waves, and that's really interfering with the the radio astronomy. I mean, obviously, that that as we sit here, the little telescope is parked with that maintenance work, so it's not observing. Um, there is another tel- big telescope at the far end of the site, the south of the site, Mark II, that we are we are observing with actually. Um, it, it, you tend to get um, the, the, the more problems tend to happen when you're using a telescope on its own, what we call a single dish experiment. So, for example, looking at pulsars where we we don't need to we don't need to zoom in to see structure to see details where they're basically a point source they're so far away they're a single small object so far away you don't need to image it you just collect the radio signal coming from it then you can do that with a single dish and it's those that are most affected by the interference if you start using these interferometers where the telescopes are spread over large distances then then if the interference is near one of them when you combine the signal with the others then that effect is largely cancelled out, not entirely. But because you've got these other telescopes at large distances that won't see that interference, then it's less of an impact. So, so we can continue with some science, but it's no denying that for the weekend there's a lot of interference which wouldn't normally be here. But we take that hit, 
I mean, for the benefit we think it brings to um, to outreach and education and so on, we think for a few days a year it's it's worth it. Wandering around the festival site, I overheard a number of conversations, and genuinely, the only complaint anyone had and it was actually quite a common complaint, was that the science talks weren't on the main stage. There are a number of stages on the site, as you might imagine, but people were turned away from the science talks as there simply wasn't enough room for them. With all that music and all those festivities taking place, the science talks were oversubscribed. Science is just too popular at Blue Dot Festival. One of the talks was by Jim Wilde, Professor of Space Physics at Lancaster University. His talk was on space weather. Well, it was really great to come and talk on the mission control stage. I always really enjoy it. Um, it's, it's brilliant to see um, you know, a tent of absolutely full of people who are really keen to find out more. So you know, like-minded people who are wandering around who are clearly, clearly very interested in science, clearly interested in space as well and astronomy. So I, I really like it. It's a lovely place, a lovely vibe. Um, also, big fan of public service broadcasting. Um, so um, they do a great, you know, great, great few so- uh, tracks about the Apollo mission. Um, they did a, an amazing set last night, and myself and my little girl were rocking away to that. So that was absolutely brilliant. So, so really, space weather is uh, becoming more of a topic of interest nowadays because uh, as society, we've built ourselves into situations where we're quite reliant on some technologies that are slightly vulnerable to effects in space. Um, and so I'm thinking things like satellites, satellite communications, navigation, um, power grids and, and that sort of thing. And so those, those processes are, um, or, or rather those technologies are susceptible to space weather. So we really need to start paying a bit more attention to it. We've evolved on a planet with a very strong magnetic field. And that magnetic field actually diverts most of the material streaming out from the sun, which we call the solar wind. It gets diverted around the planet by this magnetic field. So we, we live in what we call the magnetosphere. Uh, it's like a big magnetic bubble, and it's a force field, and we're protected by it. Um, but that, that, and that magnetic field also protects our atmosphere. So um, the atmosphere around the Earth is very thick and absorbs ultraviolet and x-ray radiation from the sun it absorbs cosmic rays so so most of the the nasty radiation that's coming from the space environment our atmosphere shields us from so it's kind of like a two two layer shield we have a really thick protective atmosphere um, that protects us from radiation but we also have a strong magnetic field which protects the atmosphere so we've got this sort of multi-layered defense naturally evolved on our planet which is kind of how you and i have become here because it's been stable for long enough for life to evolve good job it did otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation a very short podcast (laughs) Um, astronauts have been into space Uh, two of them have been for a year right everyone else is maximum six months and some of them have been to the moon how much did space weather affect them so the the effects of space weather in in sort of um, simple terms gets more significant the further away you get from the earth because in low Earth orbit, you're inside the Earth's protective shield most of the time. Okay, you're not above, you're, the, the atmosphere is not above you, it's beneath you. But the Earth's magnetic field still shields you from a lot of, a lot of dangerous um, particles. Um, and so in low Earth orbit, the sort of altitude the space shuttle or the International Space Station operates at, we don't really need to worry too much about, about space weather. Having said that, you will pick up a higher radiation dosage than you would on the ground at Earth. But then again, that's true in aircraft. When you fly in an airliner at 10,000 metres, 30,000 feet, you're picking up more radiation than you would on the ground simply because you're above the really thick part of the atmosphere. So yeah, you have to keep an eye on, on those radiation effects. Um, and, in, and, even in, and, in, and I think in the International Space Station, 
when they know that space weather is particularly bad or the space station travels through regions over the earth where um, uh, the magnetic field actually starts to funnel material inwards a little bit so there's a region over the south atlantic called the south atlantic anomaly which actually uh, the radiation dosages over that are a bit higher simply because the earth's magnetic field isn't perfectly symmetric and so the space shuttle will, uh, not the space shuttle now the, uh, the international uh, space station were to fly through that the astronauts can go to those modules which basically have thicker walls and more shielding um, and so this kind of thing carries on most of the time but if you're wanting to go further out into space then you, you really need to start worrying about space weather um, the Apollo astronauts picked up kind of reasonably high radiation doses um, compared to what someone on the, on the street would but still they were you know, measured in sort of numbers of CT scans or x-rays so nothing too bad um, and that was because, uh, well, they were travelling quite quickly, so they were only in space for, for a few days, really. Um, and most of the time, you're just lucky, most of the time the sun isn't firing out these big bursts of radiation, and so you can, you can dodge them. Um, however, if you're going to try and fly to Mars in the future, and that takes six months' flight time, then you're pretty almost certain to, to, to catch uh, some, some radiation. So really, what you're probably going to have to do there is start thinking about design of your spacecraft that will, will shield the astronauts sufficiently to, to keep them alive all the way to Mars and back. Now, one of the reasons that we do science communication, or at least one of the reasons that I do it, is to tackle erroneous beliefs in society. I'm no fan of conspiracy theories, Actually, that's not true. I find them really very entertaining. But the idea that the Apollo moon landings were faked seems like a terrible shame to me. Can you imagine missing out on one of the most amazing things humanity has ever done just for the sake of a conspiracy theory? As I had a radiation expert with me, I thought I'd give him the opportunity to answer one of the more prevalent theories of those who refuse to believe that we went to the moon. The Van Allen belt. The Apollo astronauts went through it. Some scientists talk about it being really difficult to get through, if not impossible. How do you square those two things? So, so the, the radiation belts, they, they kind of sit, there's two, there's an inner and outer belt. And if you imagine there's almost as like big donuts surrounding the Earth, around the, around the equator. In those belts, radiation is, uh, particularly electrically charged particles from the solar wind, are, are trapped by the Earth's magnetic field. So it, actually it's a bit funny, it's this thing that gives us a shield also does a good job of trapping some radiation. And so if you were to be orbiting the Earth at a distance that sat inside one of those radiation belts all the time, you'd start hooking up quite a lot of radiation, you'd be picking up a lot of radiation damage. However, if you're, for example, going to the moon, it's in the Apollo program, the, sat the, the, the astronauts started off in quite a low Earth orbit inside the radiation belts, and then they went on a translunar injection. So basically they fire their rocket motor to speed up and slingshot out, and they actually cut through the radiation belts quite quickly because they're, they're cutting through them. They're relatively thin, so you can cut through them quite rapidly. And sure, the astronauts will have picked up a radiation dose, but, but looking at all the measurements that came back from the radiation monitors on board the Apollo program, and to be honest with you, doing some A-level maths and physics, you can pretty easily see that the radiation dose isn't that bad. Sure, you wouldn't want it every day, but if it's, you know, that's what you need to do to get to the moon, that's what you need to do. It's not by any means just straight science talks at Blue Dot. Science communication comes in many forms, and on one of the smaller stages, I discovered a play being performed. Our tangible link to the planet we inhabit that we're custodians of. A reminder that half our body's atoms are formed beyond the Milky Way. We are all made of stars. And we should have looked after our place in the universe more than we did. That's what I see in my eyes and what we chose to be blind to. 
The play was written by Dave Windus. Uh, this play is called Pale Blue Dot. Um, it was sort of written in response to sort of all the environmental issues that everybody's panicking about, rising sea levels, global warming, um, that kind of thing. So it's, it's, a, it's a piece I've been thinking about for a while. Um, and then also this year, um, there's an in- initiative to kind of create um, work that looks at creating sustainable futures as well. Season for Change is the initiative that's uh, going on all over the UK. So, so theatre companies and other, work, other people that work in the performing arts and literature are creating work that's, that sort of responds to uh, the need for environmental uh, sustainability. It is inescapably sciencey, um, but it also is a piece of storytelling. We, we, we've not made life easy for ourselves. We're, we're basically creating a, a piece of work with a, with a message that's hopefully useful to some people or people can empathise with. We're also bringing together the worlds of comic book illustration. So we've been working with an illustrator to illustrate uh, these things, and we've woven in some Greek mythology as well. Um, so it's a, uh, and we've got a, a talking wild beast in the show. So it's a little bit of a complex, multi-layered thing, which is why it's taking so long to kind of get it from the initial idea onto the stage. Have you done science things before? <laughs> I've never done science things before, no. So I don't know. I'm most definitely not an expert, as they say. Uh, I did a phenomenal amount of background reading before I started writing, just to sort of put off the writing process, really, in a lot of ways. Um, And you can excuse that not doing any writing by doing a lot of reading. So, um, yeah, a lot of background reading, really. Um, And actually, I've been to this festival for the last two years as well and uh, spent a lot of time in a a bookshop last year and bought a lot of books to take home with me that uh, was a kind of core reading in the in the run-up to uh, to this and talking to uh, some of the guys from various universities and things that, that attend the festival as well. I, I, in some ways, I don't even know how this has come about, really. It's, uh, I'm the last person who should be... Uh, I, I make stuff up for a living, you know, and then suddenly I'm thinking, oh, I might have to include some facts here. <laughs> <laughs> it has a sort of necessarily dystopian mm. feel to it. I mean, are you trying to entertain people? Yeah, yeah. First and foremost, trying to entertain people, yeah. So I don't want to bore anybody. I mean, there's some explicit messages in this, which is something I I, I try and avoid. So there's definitely moments in this where it's like, look at what we're doing to the planet. Um, But actually, if people listen to the words um, and take it on board, there's also a thing that the planet's going to survive without us. So we can recall this damage. All we're doing really is putting ourselves out of business. Um, the planet will heal itself as it has done in the past and the planet will move on without us. In another part of the festival, Sam Illingworth's science communication was focused very much with the emphasis on people having fun. I'm part of something called the Games Research Network at Manchester Metropolitan University which my colleague Dr Paul Wake and I set up a couple of years ago and the idea is it brings together academics working actually right across the world that work on games and that's not just board games but it's also video games, RPGs, LARPs, live action role playing games but my speciality and Paul's speciality really are tabletop games and this really came about because we love tabletop games I don't want to tell you how many I own because it's a rather embarrassing collection and we realised that actually through playing tabletop games it offers an amazing opportunity to develop deep engagement because you're sat around a table, you're having to interact with other people, you're engaged, you're having a discussion, there's a game that's going on away from the game. I'm a senior lecturer in science communication at Manchester Metropolitan University and my research is really all about developing dialogue between so-called experts and non-experts and in particular trying to give voice to, I guess, what would be known as underserved audiences 
And so we've been doing a lot of work recently with the Institute of Physics, with the Royal Society of Chemistry, with uh, the Society for Applied Microbiology, in how we can use tabletop games, so board games and card games, to develop dialogue around specific scientific topics with audiences that might not normally engage with science. And what we found is a really effective way of doing that is to use off-the-shelf games. So these are games that already exist. So games that have been made so that people want to play them. And, you know, there's things called edu-games that exist, educational games. And unfortunately, most of them tend to be a bit pants because what they're trying to do is teach something first. And if they're enjoyable, that's a good bonus. Whereas if we instead go for games that have been created to be games, they're games that are just great games and that people want to play of their own volition and they not don't necessarily have to be about a specific topic but as we know science and in particular physics and I'm a physicist so I can say this <laughs> is in everything we do so we've done like a, a few sessions before uh, with the Institute of Physics where we've used terraforming Mars which is a game where you have to terraform Mars a fantastic game um, from Stronghold Games really recommend it and it's a beautiful game because it involves so much physics but it's not a this is a Monopoly version of physics let's play Monopoly with a reskin of physics on it it's this is just physics how cool is physics so what we're doing is we're using these games but we're asking people to engage in conversations and really think about what they can learn in the process but we wanted to design a workshop that would work for families in a fantastic festival environment like Blue Dot and WOMAD and so what we wanted to do is we wanted to pick a game that we knew that worked that would be suitable for all age ranges but that they'd be able to learn something from it and you know if we think let's have a, a family with like small children but they want to play something they're going to learn something so you know, let's go back to first principles Newton's laws of motion now that's pretty standard stuff to learn and it's quite fun as well so what can we do to make that exciting even more exciting than it is we found this amazing game called Pitch Car which basically involves a wooden track you've got wooden circular discs about the size of a 2p coin but about 10 times the thickness made of wood and you have to flick it around this track and whoever gets around the track fastest wins the game but there's loads of stuff going on there there's like all, Newton's third law of motion Newton's second law of motion Newton's first law of motion there's forces of friction and there's all the angles the angle of instance the angle of friction everything that's going on there there's so much physics and so what we do in these sessions is we have um, a little bit of an evaluation at the start where we get their baseline which we call the driving theory test then they play the game and then afterwards they take the pass plus which is where they answer the same questions but based on the experiences and the experiment that they've done in playing the game they're either they're hopefully able to answer it better than they could before. So what we've really been trying to do is to involve that level of evaluating impact to see if it's actually made a difference or not. And we did the sessions today, and the most important thing is everybody really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, the, some, of the, some of the dads got a little competitive. <laughs> some of the mums got very competitive. <laughs> but the kids had a great time, and the parents learned something. And afterwards, we were able to talk about it, and... You know, it was really nice to be able to hear them tell us what they'd learned as well. Some of them started rebuilding the tracks, and so there's a bit of engineering in there as well. And, and, and what we found was that it was a really fantastic way of getting people to engage with physics. Now, Blue Dot's very, very special festival anyway, because people are coming here, they're, they're, they're plugged in, they're engaged, they want to do science, which is great. One of the 
main thoughts that I have when I'm doing science communication things is, is everybody here already interested in science? And I think there's always a danger with science communication that you're talking to the already plugged in, right? And it's an easy way and it's brilliant being here. But let's be honest, festivals represent a certain demographic, right? And a lot of those festivals, they're not necessarily the people that we need to be reaching, which is why alongside the work that we're doing at festivals... We're doing a lot of work with, um, in particular, libraries. So there's something called International Gaming Week in October. And um, Darren Edwards, who's a librarian down in Bournemouth, um, he is the representative for the UK. And we're working with him in, and the Royal Society of Chemistry, sorry, IOP, um, in, in putting together a programme of events where we use games in libraries to start developing dialogue. But for me, what's really great is we're not, we're not delivering it. We're training the librarians in how they can use the games to start having conversations. And, you know, as everyone who does science communication and does science knows, the more you know, the more you realise how little you know. And it's having that confidence. So if, like, a five-year-old asks me a question that I don't know about friction, that's fine. We'll just find out together and we'll explore that. But if a five-year-old asks a librarian who maybe hadn't and this isn't the case for all of them, but maybe hadn't done physics since GCSE, they might not have the confidence to do that. So we're working with them to be able to say, look, games are a great way to break down those barriers, to have that confidence, and to go into different communities. And like libraries offer a great way to do that. We're doing it with mobile libraries. We're doing it with libraries in areas that um, have very different um, demographics to what we used to do. We're also doing this in different schools. Uh, so for Antimicrobial Resistance Week in November... We're working with um, Society for Applied Microbiology. This is really a hint to the IOP that they need to give us more money. Um, (laughs) To go and do work in using board games to talk about antimicrobial resistance. And that's going into schools that are being identified um, as relevant for widening participation. So students who don't normally get this. And the idea is to show them that science is everywhere. And not just that science is everywhere, but that science is for everybody. But by working in music festivals like Blue Dot, it's still really, really useful because those people that you're working with have their own demographics and their own audiences that they then go back to. And also it enables us to kind of um, test out lots of ideas, work with people and to to deliver that as an additional way as well. Now, I don't know who the people are who go to the Blue Dot Festival, but I've been going since the first year and to the forerunning events as well. But you would imagine that that idea of embedding science in the festival promotes it very much to those people who are interested in science. I dare say there are those who come for the music, but then the science catches them while they're there. In any case, there's no reason why science communication can't be for those who are already interested in science. But another way of doing it is found at the Green Man Festival and the Brecon Beacons in South Wales. It's a stunning location in a valley, and the music is really the focus. The main stage sits at the base of the valley, with the audience sprawling across the hillside. Just across from there, cleverly situated on the way from the main stage to much of the rest of the festival site, sits an area called Einstein's Garden. As the audience walk through, they pass a stage powered by solar panels and programmed by Maddie Ford. The audience for the solar stage in particular is a very family-friendly audience. It's an open stage, so it's anybody who happens to wander by. So we hope that people will uh, sort of have their attention caught by what's going on and, and, and wander in. So it's a, a real mixture. 
And when you're programming it, do you kind of think, okay, we want to have some physics, we want to have some chemistry, we want biology, and we want it for different times of the day? I mean, how do you program it? I think I approach it the other way, actually. I think I try and get a mixture of performance types, so some shows, some theatre, some music. I like the stage to have a good mixture of different things that will pull people in, and then the science is almost secondary. Yeah, but that's my personal preference, and, and... I'm sure other people will do it a different way. Do you find that particular things seem to work particularly well or things that have surprised you that they've worked well? There are, there are always things that surprise me. Um, we've got a particular challenge with it being an open stage, so we have to make sure that things are sort of family-friendly all the way through. But actually, sometimes the more risque stuff um, is very popular with both the children and parents. Um, so, for example, Johnny Berliner earlier did a song with the refrain sexual reproduction uh, and everybody loved it whereas I was kind of on the sidelines like Ooh. Um, and and then and then it really depends on the audience at the time also the weather unfortunately um, but but most things capture an audience but then do you have any kind of way of measuring how much the science has gone in no I'd rather people went away thinking that that was a really enjoyable performance and, oh, isn't it funny that they talked about, you know, I learned this fact or um, a giant whale popped up behind stage and I, I and pooed and I learned that whale poo is pink, which is what happened earlier today. Once the audience have been grabbed by the activities on the solar stage or one of the many other activities taking place in Einstein's garden, they often find themselves drifting towards the omni-tent. The easiest way to describe it is as a large bell tent filled with benches and a stage. Inside there I watch plays, comedy routines and talks, all centred around a scientific theme. One of them which really engaged me and the audience was full of hands-on scientific demonstrations. I'm Anna Pajajski, I'm a, a material scientist. So I've been doing my talk called Smart Materials. Um, my, my postdoc research is about smart materials and I've developed this show to, to share smart materials with the world because I think they're really cool. <laughs> I've done it at festivals, I've done it at schools, um, I've done it kind of in pubs in London as well. Um, I've been developing this show over the last year um, and I'm hoping to develop a new one kind of on an annual basis. When you're putting the show together, are you thinking about those different audiences does it work for everybody yeah it needs some tweaking for different audiences um i've you know when i do it to adults in a pub there's a few more swears when i do it for kids there's a bit more about sort of careers in material science and how do you get from being at school and studying you know maths physics chemistry uh biology um to being a material scientist which is not something that anyone's heard of so i do a bit more of the careers side with the with the school age people I do find that there's that it's kind of easier to get a fe- an audience at a festival like this. Well, Einstein's Garden is wonderful because it draws in people that have um, either huge amounts of expertise in science or absolutely none, but big enthusiasm. Um, so it, it's never it's never difficult to get to get interested audiences at festivals like this one. And when you say you do it in pubs, is it like an organised event, or are you just going right? I'm going to do this in the pub. Usually, it's me saying right. I'm going to do this in the pub, um, which then obviously requires quite a lot of sort of advertising and, and marketing and stuff like that. Um, so I've been learning all those sorts of skills as well in the last year, trying to trying to sell this show. It's sold as 
science, right? You're not mm. trying to hide it in the theatre show or something. You just go, this is science. Yes. Um, it's funny, I was up in Edinburgh last week at the Fringe Festival um, and we were doing a show called Science Show Off, which obviously has science in the title. Um, and as I was flyering, I would say, you know, do you like science? And lots of people would be like, no, take the flyer back. I don't want to come to a science show. Um, so it's sometimes a hard sell for people, <laughs> especially if it's if they're not there for science, if they're there for comedy. Um, so something sometimes having the science comedy crossover um it's yeah it can be it can be difficult to sell do you have an idea how do we get those people who do give you the flyer back it's difficult isn't it because you don't want to trick people you don't want to tell them it's just a comedy show and then throw science at them for an hour um i think you know if people the audience has to be complicit and and up for it you don't you don't want an audience that isn't interested um because that's not going to be fun for anyone (laughs) um so i guess it's about um trying to choose topics that are going to be interesting for people um that that they will have an interest in other than the science um and and kind of slipping it in there as well as the other content. Personally, I love a public science lecture or demonstration, and there's certainly no shortage of audience for them at festivals, but there's certainly room for these other, possibly more creative or original approaches to science communication. I caught up with Will Hunter. I'm the curator of Einstein's Garden, um, which means that I put on um, a series of programming for three days <laughs> in August every year um, and bring science to life in playful and interesting ways. Um, so, uh, the, so Einstein's Garden is a mixture of performance, um, theatre, comedy, art, music, um, science shows, all centred around science and nature um, at the Green Man Festival in the Brecon Beacons. Uh, things that always work are, like I just mentioned, things that take a bit of a playful approach to things. So, um, for example, we had a sex education class led through interpretive dance yesterday, which went down really well. Um, uh, just uh, lots of visual things. Um, music always works really well. Theatre. Um, and we try to have a nice mixture of things within Einstein's Garden as well. So, um, for instance, yesterday on the Omni Tent, which is our primary kind of venue for theatre um, and comedy, we had um, starting in the morning Strange New Space, um, which was a non-verbal puppetry <laughs> mixture of um, just really sweet little show <laughs> um, for kind of five and up, um, right through to um, the Astroholic, which were some guys making cocktails and talking about space. So, um, yeah, like I said, a huge mixture. So we try and programme to our entire audience of Green Man, um, which is a really important factor of programming science content at a music festival. Um, So like I just said, we're sort of um, families in the morning and then moving towards more adult content in the evenings, just so that we kind of make sure everyone um, has something to come to. Um, And... Yeah. There. And do you get? Do you have a sense of whether the people who have walked in here because they think, oh, I'm interested in science, or they're just kind of, uh, there's a bit of the festival I haven't looked at? I think a lot of people just stumble across it, which I quite like, and that means that we kind of have to be really clever with what we do. Uh, it's usually people walking up from the main stage were quite a good little thoroughfare. <laughs> so things that are colourful. Um, and yeah, people sort of like stumble across this weird and wonderful science show that's happening and, and stay for it and stay for a couple of hours. So... I think Einstein's Garden works really well at Green Man 
because of the context that it has of being within Green Man it's not just that it's the music and science there's uh, science performing arts there's comedy there's visual arts there's lots of other kind of cultural pursuits that you can um, come to as well as the music um, so within the context here that I think that's what makes it work here we have tried um, and are still continuing with producing our own projects with universities and um, sort of doing public engagement work directly with research communities um, and that's when we go to other festivals and different cultural contexts and deliver them there and that's worked really well as well so for example about three months ago we went to some Werberg City Farm um, summer fair and we delivered one of the projects that we had in the garden last year um, and yeah the crowd were quite similar to the Green Man crowd but it, yeah again um, people were kind of like why is there science here but this is great and something that they really wouldn't expect. Do, do you think physics is more difficult to, to, to connect with people with or anything like that? We, we have a huge selection of science tools from everything, uh, from physics to biology. Um, and, yeah, I think a lot of stuff that ends up working is always about space. <laughs> They're always very popular shows. Okay, full disclosure. The reason Will was laughing like that there was because I was also at the festival with one of my shows. It's called The Lesser Sun, and it explores humanity's desire and success in getting to the moon. It's performed... By Tom Adams. I'm pushing buttons. I'm flicking switches. Scratching the spaceship whenever it itches. Being on my own is great. I was about to strangle Buzz. And the moon is my view. Following Tom and I in the Omni Tent was a familiar face, and to you, a familiar voice. All colours gender neutral. Planet Earth 2 was designed in California and assembled in China. Planet Earth 2 is repayable in easy monthly instalments. Planet Earth 2 allows you to love the right person, the right time, first time around. Planet Earth 2 contains no small print. Planet Earth 2 is all small print. Planet Earth 2 is only sunrises. Planet Earth 2 is only destinations. Planet Earth 2 is only T's and C's. Planet Earth 2 reserves the right to. Planet Earth 2 begs the question. Planet Earth 2 is yours for just. Planet Earth 2 is currently out of stock. It is, of course, Sam Illingworth. Poetry can be a really effective way to help to facilitate dialogue between scientists and non-scientists. Even though I'm hearing a performance element, or it's slightly more one way than I would normally like, I think that poetry has that ability in the research that I do to, to facilitate that conversation. But then also, Shelley, the romantic poet, said that poets are hierophants. So, you know, they, they interpret the esoteric principles or wills back in the day of the gods. But maybe nowadays, poets and poetry is a really effective way to interpret the esoteric principles of science. And I think that there's so much amazing science out there that as well as trying to connect science and society through two-way dialogue via poetry, poetry also offers a really powerful way to maybe inspire and to awe people into 
how awesome science can be just by using maybe slightly different language or translations or interpretations. You had a pretty full tent, I mean, if not actually full tent. I mean, it was full, there were people standing room only, yeah, I was right? very surprised, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that typical, uh, joking apart, is it typical of when you've... Have you done this before, this poetry of science? So I think when I, whenever I do something that's the poetry of science rather than my name, if it's Sam Illingworth, I don't think it's... You know, my mum comes along, but and my wife. <laughs> but if it's the poetry of science, I think that people are interested. I think it's da- it's difficult as well because, in a way, there's two different or there's two different disciplines there that traditionally have been dominated by white cis heterosexual males, of which I am one. But I think that spoken word, certainly in recent years, that's that's no longer the case and. You know, physics and science is starting to change as well. So, the difficulty I think is trying to demonstrate with both disciplines that neither physics nor poetry are for certain people, but they're actually for everybody. And hopefully, by bringing the two disciplines together, it can demonstrate, you know, that people don't have to just be thought of as being inside one box or pigeonholed, but rather there's multiple facets to their personality and to their skills that they can then exploit as they go along as well. There's a sort of a politics angle to some of it as well. Yeah, I think I'm very conscious of the fact that recently a lot of my poetry and maybe some of my science communication has become a bit more political, but I think that's because of conversations that I've had with other scientists in terms of the role that scientists should play as activists. So a lot of my research before focusing purely on science communication was around environmental science and climate change you know actually making the measurements and I think that scientists some scientists not all scientists have a responsibility to not just present that data but help to people to provide them with the tools so they can interpret it and to contextualize it as well and I think for example with something like fracking there's a real danger that non-scientists are going to go in there and use a variety of different rhetoric techniques to get people to listen to what they're saying. And if scientists aren't doing that as well, then there's a danger of media bias, as we've seen the case with climate change, for example. So I think that a lot of my stuff recently has been coming more political, but I think that the role of the science activist is something that's becoming very, very important um, and prevalent in 21st century science. It's interesting because we spoke to Professor Kevin Anderson in the previous episode of this podcast. Very much a science activist, yeah. yeah. And he was saying that the conversations that he has with uh, climate scientists and other scientists, off the record, they speak about climate change in a much more vehemently uh, passionate way. It's really difficult as well because scientists are taught from an early age to communicate the cold hard facts, right, and to not necessarily bring pathos into it. And that's really bad because then the people who are anti-climate change or anti-anthropogenic climate change are using that, are using that rhetoric, that empty rhetoric without the logos, without logical argument. And I think it's really dangerous for scientists not to do that because how can you talk about climate change without getting annoyed or without getting angry, without getting upset? And by doing that, not only are you not using a tool in your locker, you're also, I think, alienating yourself from the rest of society. Whereas if you're able to demonstrate to people, look, this is me, I'm getting annoyed, I'm getting upset, it demonstrates the human angle of the scientist and it helps the rest of society to see that as well. You know, I say it all the time, but scientists who research climate change are still affected by climate change. 
and it's really important for the rest of society to realise that science are part of that wider society rather than just these ethereal beings living on the outside that kind of communicate what's going on. And do you know who the audience are for these poetry sessions? That you... So I think it depends very much on the different festivals or set up so I did a literature festival recently so there will be people who are very interested in poetry maybe have less of an understanding of science you know at Green Man we're talking to to some extent uh, liberal middle class people who may be talking about the message of climate change is much more straightforward but what I try and do in these sets is to try and communicate to them. It's not. It's not just. It's not just thinking that it's bad that it's not. It's just how do you start having those conversations? How do you start engaging other people with it? So that's like the provocation here, and then this kind of um, working with audiences that are maybe less accepting of climate change from an anthropogenic point of view. This kind of stuff doesn't necessarily work as much because it feels like a one-way diatribe. And what's necessary there is to work with those groups in a one-to-one setting maybe and demonstrate that we're listening to their voice and we're not trying to get a gender across but it's just trying to have that communication. So I absolutely do go into environments in which climate change isn't seen as something that's um, 100% anthropogenic and negative but maybe, I don't know, maybe is there a, is there a right-wing festival that, um, <laughs> that I should be going to, like music festival in the UK? I don't think it'd really have the kind of music I'm into. Glaston Tory. Glaston Tory, very good. That is very, very good. Please, please nobody, <laughs> nobody copyright that. <laughs> so have you had backlash then? Have you had people come up to you and say... No, no, not really. I mean, sometimes people, I guess... The, the biggest criticism I have sometimes is I talk a lot about the responsibility of the scientist... And I think sometimes that I get a bit passionate and maybe I'm trying to tell scientists that aren't doing that that they should be doing that. But that's not necessarily the case because not all scientists can and not all scientists should communicate with the general public. You know, it's, And it's an unfair expectation because just because you're very, very good at doing one thing doesn't mean you're necessarily good at doing another. I'm good at communicating with the public, but there's many scientists out there who are much better scientists than I am, far more intelligent than I am but maybe they're not necessarily as good at communicating with the public. So sometimes they get a bit of backlash with people saying, but not all scientists should do that. And I agree that maybe there is a time and a place for it. But most of the time people are relatively receptive. I don't think I'm yet to have like any fruit or anything thrown at me, um, <laughs> rotten or otherwise, um, for the aesthetic quality of my poetry. <laughs> Science communication certainly seems to be a growing success at festivals. And it comes in many forms. There are shows for audiences of all different types, even those who think they don't like science. Using poetry, board games, music and theatre, science communicators can reach people who might not otherwise be drawn to what we in the science community spend our lives doing. It's certainly the case that many among the audience are already knowledgeable about science, be they scientists or enthusiasts. There's something quite comforting about hearing somebody taking to a stage and saying things that you agree with. And, as Enrico Fermi said, never underestimate the joy people derive from hearing something they already know. We'll be back next month when Physics World will turn 30. The magazine will delve back into the archive to see where physics was 30 years ago. But here on the Physics World Stories podcast, we're beginning a mini-series to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the magazine, where we'll explore the future of some of the most compelling areas of physics. We begin 
with particle physics. Until then, I'll leave you with some of Sam Illingworth's poetry. Why am I a scientist? Personally, partly out of personal perseverance and perspiration, but I would not have even had the chance to work up a sweat if I had not been encouraged from an early age that the world is my experimental stage. So when I asked my mum and dad for the 10th, the 20th, the 100th time, but why? They could have answered with a sigh. They could have told me to shut up, to pipe down, to stop being a nuisance, but they didn't. Instead, they took me to the exotic land of Halifax where I spent hours at the National Children's Museum Eureka learning about forces and fulcrums, pulleys and potentials, all the while wondering why when Archimedes stood up out of his bath he appeared to be missing his penis. At primary school, Mrs Harrison and Mrs Cornish took us to the butterfly enclosures at Roundtay Park and because I was such a good little boy, they held tight onto my hand from light until dark. It was here amongst the tropical greenhouses of West Yorkshire that I found out about the peppered moth and developed a deep and completely unscientific phobia of spiders. Their bejeweled eyes staring dazzlingly at me from behind the confines of their translucent mausoleums. Lords, give me strength with this child, Mr Monday would say as I asked him for the tenth time that day, why the sky was blue, how fish could swim, what they did with their poo and what exactly it was Mr Monday about the Saragossa Sea that made it so attractive to eels and then he'd stop and sit and tell me why. At secondary school Mr Cross and Mr Crane introduced us to physics. Casting aside the curriculum as we journeyed across the universe via black holes and supernovae. One time Mr Crane bought a Geiger counter in and we passed it over the milky interiors of some chocolates that he brought from Chernobyl. All the while greedily gobbling up the worlds that he spun from his blackboard's pulpit. Curiosity did not kill the cat. Unless the cat also happened to be trapped inside a box with a vial of radioactive gas, eking out a pseudo-existence of not being dead and alive at the same time. But if Dr German and Professor Rain had never taken the time to explain to me Schrodinger's waveform, then I would never have known to look inside that box. And by not doing so, my result would have changed. Physics World.